friends and enemies, and welcome to In the Finest Hour, a 40k competitive podcast about teaching you skills and advice you can use in about an hour. From the center, I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have on my right our good podcast host, Shaylin Allen. Greetings. And on my left, our evil podcast host, Joshua Death. Yoeth. Welcome back, Yoeth. Yeah, Yoeth. Yoeth has made a return, I see. Is that your resolution for the new year? To say Yoeth? That's, that's my 2019. We're bringing Yoeth back. Ooh. <laughs> 2019, the year of the Yoeth. It's got to be the year of something. I suppose it does. The Chinese might disagree about the whole Yoeth thing. I don't think they're into that. But, uh, you know, who listens to them? Certainly not us. Uh, speaking of New Year's resolutions, do you guys have any 40K-related ones? I do. Well, what do you got? Um, my goal is to play other armies that are not Grey Knights at RTTs. Who are you and what have you done with Shay Lim? <laughs> I want to play Grey Knights better, so I need to play other armies to learn them so I can break them easier. Uh, that's true. Like, playing a couple armies is actually a really good experience for learning your main army. Yeah, no, that's what I figured. And in addition to that, there's also the kind of, like, confusing all the people in the meta. Yeah, everyone's expecting you to bring Grey Knight and you bring something else. Oh, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what armies you want to branch out into? Uh, probably Tau and Eldar, because I have really easy access to that. That's true. Um, probably going to play some Guard and just fool around and figure it out. Yeah, it never hurts to uh, stay within your, your range of allies, so you can bring whatever army you've been practicing with over in your main army. Mm-hmm. Josh, what about you? Um, mine's actually a little bit more... Uh, a little little broader for me, specifically. Uh, my 40K resolution this year is to really push forward with something I've been working on for the last year or two. Uh, been putting a lot of effort in the last year or two. I mean, I, I uh, for anyone that knows me and knows that my, my uh, quote-unquote reputation is not only earned but garnered well, that's a reputation I've worked very hard lately to try and overcome. And... Uh, the, the way I've, I've decided to spearhead that is I've tried to, to adopt a motto, and this year is to, my resolution is to embrace that motto and really uh, show it well. And that is, it is not if I win, but how I win. That is the most important thing for me moving forward, and it needs to be the thing I embrace in every game I play, in every tournament I play. And uh, that seems to be the thing I'm, I'm going to be focusing on more than anything. And that is my resolution, is to not lose sight of that and to continue to try and hold on to that. Okay, that's that's actually really admirable. Yeah, and it's a hard thing to do. Uh, you know, everyone wants to be a better player and a better person, and it's a great goal, but it's, it's not easy to hold yourself to the standards that you want to be able to meet in the moment always. Uh, there's always that temptation to, like, well, hey, I can win this game if I just do this little thing that my opponent might not like, but is completely within the rules. Exactly. Avoiding doing that is a tough temptation, but you're only going to get better through practicing it. Yeah, uh, that's why I remind myself at the start of every game, hey, I want to have a good, clean game with you, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to gotcha or anything, and I just like stating my intention in advance, and... By reminding myself that, I can stay being a good player. Amen. Yeah, it, it reminds both players in the game that that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Yeah, no, everyone gets tilted, so that's that's something else to work on. <laughs> right. 
What's well, yours? My resolution isn't you know, quite as high-minded as Josh's is. It's actually a lot simpler. I just want to finish painting one army. Okay. Just one army fully painted. That's my goal this year. That's that's out of my reach. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Not every model in an army. Just one army. Okay. I want to finish one army. And I know I won't do it, but I'm going to try. All right. Word of advice, don't buy new models. I mean, <laughs> it helps that I already have almost every Eldar model out there. Uh, I don't need very many more things. I've run out of stuff to buy in a lot of cases. <laughs> uh, I haven't quite achieved 100% Grey Knight density because I don't own a Thunderhawk, but that's okay. Yeah, see, I don't count stuff like that. Super heavies that you can never bring to the table, they're not part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> I will own one. My Grey Knight sitting collecting dust on the shelf. Yours and everyone else's. <laughs> Except one or two people. Right. I want to bring a Thunderhawk to an RTT as a joke. Oof. The fact that the Grey Knights get it 200 points cheaper than, than the other Space Marine chapters still just blows my mind. Ah, 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 ah. I have to pay for twin Psy Cannons that are 50 points instead of twin Heavy Bolters. True, if you want the Psy Cannons, I think. Or is it required? You have to take them. That's not optional. Yeah, the Grey Knight version comes with them instead. That sucks. But their price went down. No. Uh, they did, the price on the twin Psychans did not go down. Heavy Psychan. <laughs> the regular Psychan is in, but the twin didn't. That's cute. Yeah. Uh, they, they priced the twin up specifically to avoid making people take the twin Psychan and Razorback. Because uh, okay. uh, they decreased the price of the Forge World Land Raider and Thunderhawk to accommodate for the price, but they're like, nope, this Razorback doesn't get to be taken anymore. That makes sense. It's dumb. stupid vehicles. <laughs> well, let's get into the topic we got this week, which is first turn versus second turn. A dilemma that we all have faced, I mean, literally so. Uh, every player's got to win that roll off and make the decision at some point. Uh, so how do you make that choice? What's, what's going to be the advantages of one or the other? And, you know, against what armies and in what circumstances are you going to decide that you need to go first or you need to go second? So, for me, my observation is is that armies that you build generally have a preference one way or another, a rule of thumb preference. Mm -hmm. And it will change on matchups slightly, but like 80% of the games it'll be one way or the, instead of the other. Yes. I think that's typically true, is that every army has one that it favors, but of course the flip side of that is that there are times when you don't want to use your favorite strategy. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with, is they don't know when it is they need to change that default decision, because having a, a good baseline to work with is very important, but you always need to know when you need to change your plan. Mm -hmm. We're going to discuss today a bit about the advantages of both and recognizing when it's a good idea, because you'll know why. Exactly. That was kind of our, the idea with this one. We pick apart why you would or wouldn't want to. And I wanted to divide things up in what I thought was a, a kind of a useful way, uh, because I know, Shaylin, you usually play pretty aggressive armies, having been on the receiving end of that aggression more than once or twice. Uh, there, there's a pile of Sean's corpses over there when you're not talking about. Almost inevitably. Uh, just a whole bunch of poor little elves and fishmen who have been smashed to pieces. <laughs> Uh, but on the flip side, Josh, I know you tend to play much more defensive and kind of reactive-styled armies. I do, I do. Especially in 8th edition. 
Uh, eighth edition is definitely a good edition for it. So I want to kind of break things up and have Shaylin discuss the topics relating to why you would want to go first, and then we'll take a little bit of break. And in the second half of the episode, Josh is going to explain why she's completely wrong about everything and that you really want to go second. And maybe at the end of the episode, we'll kind of wrap things up and uh, see who is the ultimate victor and wins the giant prize. So this is good versus evil? Yeah, isn't everything? Fair enough. <laughs> exactly. All right, Shaylin, uh, why don't you start us out? Why, what is good about going first? What's the best thing about going first? The best thing about going first and the reason why Games Workshop had to come up with the uh, bottom-of-turn counter-stratagem for this reason is firepower, is yeah. the very first one. You're able to get the first strike in, and for certain kinds of armies, uh, especially what I would consider a glass cannon army style, basically the Eldari chassis, sure. getting the first punch in is super good for them. There's other nuances that I'm about to go into, but that's number one is you get to get the first whack in, whatever that looks like. Yeah, and, and not just with shooting either. Yep, no, uh, you, you can also, certain armies can close melee gaps super fast, uh, but the other thing you can do is you can set up for melee things, so it's like basically like, well, I didn't have to waste a turn getting shot at getting myself in position to make my charges turn two. Absolutely. Uh, if you are the one who gets to move into the middle of the board and take those convenient ruins before your opponent can get to them, that is a really strong thing to do. Also, uh, you can do this through stratagems and often through psychic powers is how people look at it is buffing. There's a lot of things like, uh, I'm going to cite a Grey Knight's example because of course I am. Um, Heed the Prognosticars happens at the beginning of my player turn. I have to do it then. So that's like an example of a buff I need to do. And having first turn means I didn't get shot at and I'm not risking something. Yeah. Because I'll have had it up in the first place. There's a lot of units out there where, without their defensive buffs, they're quite a bit easier to kill. Uh, you yeah. use it on your Dread Knights, giving them that three-up invulnerable save. Uh, but you also see this with various, you know, Magnus or Plague Bearers or stuff like this, where if they don't get to cast their two or three buff spells, then it's a lot easier to get rid of them. A lot. Um, there's also, we, do, we did mention last time in the Tempo episode, you do have... All things equal, a slight tempo advantage having the first turn because you get you get to dictate the first set of moves and force your opponent to react to them. So you can set up like I'm going to do A, B, and C, and now you've got 18 decisions. Good luck yeah. or none if you've also done it really well. Um, the other thing you've got is uh, in the nature of reserves, you get the initial push out into the table, so you can mess up your opponent's reserve game with that. Because yeah. you're the one who gets to dictate this board control lunge that can be really useful and empowering there. Uh, you do have an early game advantage. Mm -hmm. You can ra potentially rank up more points in the early game while you still have units to play with. Yeah, I, I would even go so far as to say that the player who goes first typically has the advantage in the early game almost regardless of other factors. Yes. If you've got a critical unit like a Castellan, um, that you want to, like, supercharge up and just have go to town on your poor opponent's little elf dudes or whatever, he'll get to be able to go because he won't have been shot off the table or something mildly inconvenient like that. Yeah. If, yeah, if you have a, a unit that is critical to your strategy or very central to what you're doing, then going first is a, a huge advantage for that. 
some examples of other critical units are Magnus, for example, because he mm-hmm. A wants to buff, but B he's got that two D six smite that can potentially be army crippling. Yeah. He'll be at full health, so he'll be able to c- truly use it. And really, any unit that is central to your entire strategy. Uh, yeah, no, a, a quick identifier aside is, if it's over 300 points, it's probably important. Yeah. As a rule of thumb. Josh, how, how, how do you see a lot of these things? Like, do you, do you do you pretty much agree with all of this? Do you have anything you want to tack on to Shaylin's points here? Pretty much hitting the nail on the head. I mean, obviously, the points that she's making in regards to... The, your decision-making process as to why you're wanting to go first, um, revolving around the concept of, you know, if you have the clutch units that you need to get into position, or you have the, the clutch buffs that you need to get off. There's a lot of armies out there, not just, you know, I mean, obviously she represents the Grey Knights, or she knows those ones so well, but Eldar is a prime example. They have a lot of psychic powers defensively that they will like to throw up ahead of time just to make sure that they can weather their opponent's first turn. Um, Nurgle and Chaos, same thing, similar principles. You know, they're they're throwing up all these these protective layers to make sure that when their opponent does go first or gets to answer back, they're going to be able to mitigate that as best as possible. And so... Uh, going first is not always the aggression. It's not always the I'm going to draw first blood, and it's not always I'm going to be you know pounding them turn one. Uh, sometimes, quite often, it's I'm going to set it up to make it to where their first turn is almost not a first turn. You're trying to take away that first turn from your opponent. Yeah. And that that is that is probably the only thing I would add is there that element is still there for a lot of armies that want to go first, even though they're not doing a lot of damage. They're, the damage they're doing is they're taking away your ability to play the game. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. like, as, as we said, as Sean mentioned earlier, moving up into those critical ruins and seizing control of them. Well, that's a defensive strategy. First turn, you are always playing for at least turn two, hopefully turn three in your conceptual head. So getting to make the opening moves, you get to dictate and really just no one's stopping you from doing what you want to do. Yes, they can't stop you because they haven't gotten to do anything yet. Exactly! That's huge. Mind the biggest, the single biggest strength of going first is your ability, if you so choose to take it, is to set and control the tempo of the game from that moment forward. You have Yes. And so that that is your chance. If you go first, you have that opportunity. The door is open for you. No one can take it from you unless you so choose to give it up. Mm-hmm. And that and that's, that's a really strong element for first-turn play. Yes. And I think that uh, having an army that can take advantage of that is very important. Uh, a mistake I've often seen a lot of players make is they build an army that can only play effectively on either the top or bottom of the turn. Um, whereas a good army should be able to do both effectively. You really want to have those options. Yes. I also wanted to uh, call out something Shaylin had just said, and something she has brought up a number of times in the past. <laughs> um, the moving and terrain pieces to control them like that. Um, this is something you will see a ton at LVO and other places with big lo- line of sight blocking terrain. Moving your units into them is both a defensive bonus, as she mentioned, uh, because obviously your opponent is going to be really hard-pressed to shoot at something they can't see, Um, but it's also a big offensive bonus, because you've now staged yourself in an area where you can control a large swath of the board. If you think about those, say, like, 
I don't know, 10 corn berserkers or a couple smash captains or whatever other unit may be hiding inside a building in the middle of the board, suddenly you're projecting a threat around you that is like almost a 24-inch bubble where your opponent is going to be very, very leery of going. I, I won a game against three knights and a handful of guardsmen friends mm-hmm. where I got to stage in a center ruin with a bunch of threats and he just kind of sat there and went, swore a lot. <laughs> uh, but it is that setting yourself up for the second turn, as Josh was saying, that now Shaylin was controlling the tempo of the game there. She dictated what her opponent had to respond to, and that is, in no small part, the power of the first turn. Yeah. Long story short, I won the game, so yes. that was important that I did that. Another thing we touched on briefly was... Uh, Fragile units, mm-hmm. um, as, as Shailene said, those glass hammers. Um, if you go first, you'll get to get at least one use out of those units, no matter how fragile they are, no matter how good of firepower your opponent has, you'll at least get to use them once. And sometimes that's enough if the unit is hard enough hitting. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some units out there who can shoot really, really hard, or who are just absolute blenders in assault. Uh, and guaranteeing you get to use them once is a big deal for many of those armies. Exactly. Where you are trading units with your opponent, um, the first player also has a significant advantage, uh, as typically when you are first player, you are getting to choose those trades, Mm -hmm. and obviously you're going to choose the trades that are better for you in that sort of case. Or you don't, and that's a mistake. Well, we won't discuss making the wrong decisions here, but presuming you are making the right choices, these are all things that the first player can have a significant upside in. Another thing is uh, is there's the psychological aspect of, since you're making the opening moves, your opponent can feel overwhelmed by them if they are maybe not grandiose enough, but if they are aware of the implications of enough. Sure. It can be very demoralizing to watch a quarter or a third of your army get swept off the board. And even if you may still have a chance at that point, you might feel like you don't. Josh has talked about in the past that our, our saturation episode, it's the the feeling, the perception of threat is almost more important than the threat itself. Well, I think that largely covers the the issues of uh, why you, we would want to take the first turn. Uh, I think we're going to turn it right over to our quartermaster, and we'll catch you back in the second half of the episode. Gamers, are you looking to do conversion of your dreams but just can't find the right bits? Probably because they don't exist? Gaiman with a top hat? Magnus with a pimp cane? Mortarian playing chess? Well, those dreams can become reality with Vrita Forge, a design and 3D printing studio that can make the bits you've always wanted to happen, happen. Vrita Forge can be found through Facebook, that's V R E D A. 
F-O-R-G-E, like Forge Worlds. Contact her, and she can design custom bits, parts, in any number you desire, from one to a million. Verita Forge. Make all of your Wargaming Bits dreams come true. We're back, refreshed and resupplied and ready for combat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to put the case over to Josh here. Shaylin has made a bunch of her points, uh, and I think she's made some pretty good ones so far. Um, so, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you would want the second half of the turn if all of those things are so good? Well, there's a couple sides to that. Uh, one, obviously, the, is is what I would consider the obvious choice in that by going second, it gives you the opportunity to react to what your opponent is doing. Um, and if, again, going back to what Sean was mentioning, what you mentioned earlier, in that there's pros, there there's strong cases to make it to where if your army can reliably do both, can take the offensive, can take the first turn, but can also play reactively for the second turn, it makes you for a strong army because your ability to react to what your opponent is doing gives you serious strength if you can capitalize, monopolize on the things they aren't doing. Hmm. If they're moving into ruins and they're hiding out of line of sight, but leaving those, uh, as we mentioned previously in one of in the board control episode uh, about those those uh, movement lines, the the control lines in between terrain pieces, the flow of the board, in the, in essence, um, it gives you the opportunity then, okay, well, you have that piece of terrain, I'm going to control the flow of the board over here, and let's let's force the engagement not in the terrain piece, but over here. Um, and by being able to react, it lets you then see, okay, well, they're putting their energy here, I'm going to go and do it over here, I'm going to do something else. So the reactionary aspect of that is really, really strong. Caveated that, you can take advantage of it. Obviously, you have to be able to actually take advantage of those opportunities. If you can, that's where going second comes into play. Um, so your ability to react is a huge, huge point to it. Uh, specifically in a lot of mission sets, though, not even just the ITC, but a lot of the very popular mission sets, going second gives you the, the, the single greatest aspect to going second is the control it gives you over the scoring of the game. Mm. That is... Probably the single largest aspect and bonus to me of going second. Um, ITC is the example I'll use right now in that every turn, both players get a point for killing something. Both players get a point for holding an objective. So those are points both players are probably going to get. But the points that not both players are going to get is killing more and holding more. Yeah. And if I already know how many objectives you hold and I already know how many units you killed, I don't need to kill an unknown number. You killed two, I only need to kill three. You killed one, I only need to kill two. Mm -hmm. It tells me what I need to do and allows me to control my actions to do that action only. I don't need to kill five things. I only need to kill one or two. It gives you the advantage in information over your opponents. Exactly. You've already seen everything they've done. You can just react to what they do because it's not about the absolute number of units you kill. It's about the relative number. Exactly, and that 
that information is huge, especially in an ITC setting. If I've already looked at the side of the table and I know you're controlling two things, I only need to control three. Uh, I was going to also say sometimes you know if they've killed 15, then you know not to try for that. Yes. Exactly. Again, that information, like, oh my god, he, he killed nine units this turn. You know what? I'm going to say screw it. There's no way I'm going to take it this turn. In, in so doing, what I will do is I'm going to whittle that unit, that unit, that unit, and that unit down. I'm not actually going to kill any of them. So I'm going to set it up so that next turn and the turn following, I've got my guaranteed kills and potentially more. Because mm -hmm. I'm setting myself up rather than trying to fight with killing nine units that I know I can't do. So, again, information. That information that I have <clears throat> is invaluable in my ability to try and win the game. Because, as we have stated many, many times already... You're playing the mission. You play the score. Mm -hmm. And so, at the end of the day, if you're going second, you're going second because you're playing that score. You're playing to get more points than your opponent. And you're, you're going to get more kills. You're going to get more holds. You're looking at what they're doing and how to respond to those. And again, that goes back to that primary that I mentioned previously, where your ability to react. It all, all of this is going to come down to your ability to react. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the big ones, and it was more... I think it was more prevalent in previous editions, more like fifth, really and truly, was the heyday of it, but the good old-fashioned endgame, right? Sean, I think, would have a very, very good uh, memory of when Eldar used to have this wonderful ability of waiting till the fifth turn of the game, and all of a sudden, bikes just shooting out 48 inches all over the place and landing on objectives everywhere, <laughs> because that's what they could do. Eldar going second was, was hair-pulling, playing against it, because their ability to react to you, they had so much speed, so much maneuverability, their ability to react to you was just insane, and it showed on the tabletop. <clears throat> There's still an element of that today. Sure, uh, and, and I would say for, we use the ITC missions as an example, um, but for those of you who are playing base rulebook missions or Renegade or Nova missions, those are at least as advantageous for the second player, if not more. Yeah. Yes, especially because in those ones, you actually get the knowledge when you go into choosing first or second, you already know whether your opponent, because a lot of like the Nova missions, they uh, you have to choose pre-endgame uh, scoring or progressive scoring. Mm -hmm. So if my opponent has chosen progressive and I'm going second, again... He doesn't score that to the start of his turn, so that gives me my turn to take those away. Yeah. And so, again, the ability to react. Um, as you mentioned previously, Shay, the terrain. Mm -hmm. Terrain being a huge example. You know, it, being able to uh, choose, uh, you know, going first, and I'm going to get into this piece of terrain, I'm going to get this piece of terrain, it's really strong, it's really advantageous, but even more so, the ability for your opponent to be like, all right, well, you have that piece of terrain, and you have a bunch of 24-inch guns, and you have a 6-inch move, and you've got those pieces there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move over to this piece of terrain, which just conveniently happens to be 31 inches away from you. Yep. And, and so, again, the ability to react. I just took that piece of terrain that you fortified into out of play for at least another turn. Mm -hmm. And so you have a choice. Either you're going to stay in it, and you're going to stay in that section of the board, and now I'm going to try and maybe monopolize on that on the open board that I just gained, or you're going to have to come out and try and engage me, but you're going to have to engage me in a disadvantageous position. Yes. So, again, the, the ability to react, the ability to respond to their choices they're making kind of goes back to that one. Mm -hmm. 
I would say that even extends to the deployment part of the game. Um, since the player who's going second often is the player who has more units, um, just because of the way that deployment tends to work these days, uh, the ability to react to your opponent's deployment by placing your important units last, as we talked about in our deployment episode, for those of you who were listening all the way back then, thank you, <laughs> um, is a big part of that sort of second-turn mentality as well. I've actually seen a couple a uh, couple lists in the last probably month or so that I've seen, and I've been watching the way they play it, and it's really interesting. So they will completely throw out the even attempt at trying to get the plus one to go first. Um, though they're pushing 23, 25 plus units drops in their lists, mm-hmm. and so they don't even they're they're not even trying to go first. What they are doing is for all these armies out there that have you know ten, eleven, twelve drops, they have between 8 to 10 drops of theirs that don't matter. Yeah. Yep. As far as where they're going. Either deep striking or some type of reserve or something that's just going to drop in the middle of the deployment zone and not care. So they'll suck 80% of your deployment out of you before they actually start deploying anything that really matters to them. And when they do that, your army's down. They already know where everything you've got. So it lets them deploy all of their key units 100% reactionary. And it sets them up exactly where they want to be. Information. Information and tempo. Yes. Tempo also. That is a good example. Uh, the back-and-forth style deployment that we do these days is a good example of how you can set tempo. Uh, that's you know obviously a subject for a different episode that we've already done, but <laughs> the, the concept still applies. Yes, very much so. And a lot of these, I think we're going to see that, obviously. The more and more of these episodes we get in, the more and more I think the, the we're going to see where... These topics, these uh, especially these broad overarching uh, concepts that we've touched on, how we're going to see them, they're just interacting and interlacing with other topics down the road, other things down the road, because they're just going to, it's going to keep coming back. You know, the tempo is going to come back up. The board control is going to come back up. We're going to keep referencing those because they're always going to be there. It's always an element that is fueling and, and pushing into why you're making the decisions you do. And so I, I just think it's awesome, especially to see that, like in the middle of our conversation, to see those even now coming back up and still kind of showing themselves. Um, but the last one for me, the, the last selling point for me for going second over first is Endgame. Um, I, I, can't, I can't even count. I, it's beyond number. The number of games that I have lost over the years because I chose to go first, not second, and when you get down to the wire, and, and, and any anyone that's ever played any level of tournaments knows, you get down to the wire. It's a it's a really tight game. You're 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 down to the clock, right? Each player's got probably ten minutes left because you have to split the last twenty minutes of the game. You're you're literally clocking it out. That person that gets the bottom there, I would I would put solid money. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would wager money that in those settings, in those situations, the person that goes seconds more often than not, ends up winning the game. Because they have the information to where I'm not... If I'm going first, I'm having to look at not only what am I trying to accomplish this turn, but I'm also having to look at variables, unknown. How much is he going to get? How much is he going to do? So I'm having to do almost double duty in this last turn when I've only got 10 minutes. I'm having to do all this stuff. I'm having to think about what could they do to me? What are they going to try and do to me? Where is he going to try and go? I was just going to say that I think it's more than just that last turn. I would say that the whole second half of the game, the the player on the bottom of the turn is an advantage. Because turns one, two, maybe three, 
it's that first player who's really setting the tempo. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to the bottom half of that game, that second player has had a chance to take control of things, if their army's doing what they want, obviously. Um, and by the time you get to that, that those final stages, where you're running out of units and you're running out of guns and you just don't have a lot you can do, that second player has a big, big upside. Yes, and and if they and if they position themselves like you like you just said, if they position themselves to take advantage to to take those windows where they had the opportunity to take back that tempo to take control, if they took advantage of those opportunities and they did that, which is what they're obviously assuming was designing their their list or their design play style to do, then exactly turn four, five, and six. That's their time to shine. That's their game. And those are the moments where a lot of those 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 heavy alpha strike lists, if they haven't crippled, if they haven't done enough damage in those first three turns, that's where they lose it. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked earlier about the the sort of fragile units that if you're on the top of the turn, that's great for you because you have all these units that get to do their job and smash as hard as they possibly can. But the flip side of that is if you have an army that can take a punch real well, if you have 120 plague bearers or three knights or whatever other incredibly resilient uh, army you are bringing to the table, the end game is where you're really doing your best work because the opponent has spent the whole game trying to grind you down and probably you've been grinding them down a lot faster because that's a game you want to play. And once you're both down to those last little scraps of your army, you are playing the game you want to be in. They are not. Mm -hmm. It's actually uh, interesting that you mentioned that, Sean, because that was really like the last the the last key point that I always kind of like to throw. I wanted to throw in to mention in the going second is specifically armies that are designed to play the attrition war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of armies out there that are designed to play the attrition war, the prime example, the one you just mentioned, you know, like a 90 to 120 plague bears, that's an attrition war, you know. Um, those style armies, they excel at going second. That is what they want to do. They want to go second because they want to put you into that war of attrition. They want you to commit. They want you to commit to try and kill them and fail. Because if you make that commit and you fail... They win. They've done their job. They did exactly what they wanted to do. And so that's a prime example of where we've talked about multiple times where that second player is setting the tempo, just like what Shay mentioned a minute ago, where in deployment, they have set themselves up in deployment to take advantage of that tempo, to control it through the game, where even the alpha player thinks they're like, all right, I'm doing exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to drop these guys down. I'm going to do all this damage. And they think that that's what they're set to do and they're supposed to do, when in reality they don't even realize, given the circumstances, they're playing into that other, their opposing army, exactly like the opposing army wants to. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, that, that is a, that is the, the, the attrition war is a big one. And I always recommend and I always caution people, if you're playing a very aggressive army, look at your opponent's list. When they hand you your list and their list and you're looking over it, look at their list. And if their list doesn't have a whole lot of killing potential, doesn't have a whole lot of damage output, just somehow it's there, but it just doesn't want to die. That's a you really need to evaluate and consider where and when you pick your battles during that fight. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't think about it carefully, it will cost you. Because it's designed to get punched. It's designed to get beat on. And so if you're not beating on it right, you're just throwing yourself at it, you're gonna go five turns in and realize you've got nothing left and they're gonna win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
this is a good transition into the kind of the ultimate discussion of this topic is sometimes, like an aggressive army, as Josh has mentioned, I don't want to go first in that match. I want them to go first. Yep. Force your opponent to play the game they don't want to play. It's a subject we've hit a lot of times before, but it's just as relevant here. If they're designed to take first turn, or if they're designed to take second turn, maybe you need to make them play that game they're not ready for. Yep. So, so it, sort of to expand that, when do you take the the top or bottom of turn that you're not ready for? When do you flip-flop your decision? What's going to be your deciding factors? Okay. Almost always it's the opponent's list and the terrain on the table. Those two okay. things factor into the decision. Uh, for example, one of the things I really, really love doing is hiding my units outside of line of sight, because regardless of which turn I get, you can't shoot at them if I'm going second. Very true. Uh, but in certain types of matchups... Like, they're sitting there, they have a lot of line of sight ignoring terrain, or things like artillery or something, um, in which me hiding out of line of sight is not necessarily advantageous for me, and they've got this really attrition game, or not attrition, but aggressive game plan, then it's like, well, okay, I can't hide anyways, I really want to go first and get that punch in more. Or if if they've got a really fragile unit, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to nuke that thing. Yeah, get rid of it before they can use it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, what would you say are, are times you would sort of invert your usual decision? So for me, uh, like you mentioned earlier, I, I've i leaned more away from the heavily skewed armies these days. I don't have a tendency to run like in a list that is, it only goes second and that's all it can do, or it only goes first and that's all it can do. I kind of try and embrace what you mentioned earlier, where I, I try to make an army that can do both. Mm-hmm. It may not excel at either, but it can equally do both. Because then it only then I'm only having to make a decision based off one army, not two. Mm. So then if I if I win that role to go first, I win that role to go first, and my pure deciding factor isn't my army because I know my army can do either. Mm-hmm. My pure decide, my all of my decision making process goes into that on which do they not want more, mm. and that's what I make the choice on. I and I what I have to do is I have to step out. I believe step step out of my army. I look at their list. And I'm like, all right, if I'm running this army right now. Which does it want to do? And if I win that role to make the choice, I'm going to give it the other one. And I'm going to do that ten times out of ten. Okay. And so by, by writing my list to be able to do either, it allows me to process less and think about less when I'm having to make that decision. Because if I'm trying to do both, a lot of times then you wind up with the conflict. Like, well, I really want to go first because I need this, this, and this to go off for my army. But I really want to go second because of all the stuff they have over here. Whereas if I take that out of the picture on my half, now I'm just basing it off of this one. No conflict, that's to worry about. So you're you're not looking to advantage your army at all. You're just looking to make them play the worst game they can. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting philosophy. I think it's a it's a valuable one. Yeah. Uh, my my army actually does pretty well at second at bottom of turn. It does quite good at first as well. So mm-hmm. I've discovered that I have a preference to go second, but it is a minor preference. So if my opponent's army doesn't have a preference either, I'll take the one that's slightly advantageous. Sure. Well, if there's one takeaway we have from this whole discussion, and one thing that anyone listening to this should learn, it's that you need to be ready to do both. You can't have an army that can only win when it's getting the first turn, or that only wins when it's getting the second turn. Um, And... 
I mean, if for no other reason, then you're, you're not going to go through a five-round tournament and always get the turn order that you want. That's just not realistic. I've seen it happen before. I remember way back in the, the days of 5th edition with the leaf blower list. Uh, <laughs> the guy that won Art Boys with the leaf blower list, which is just a ton of artillery and firepower and basically no defenses at all. And he, he won that tournament going six rounds undefeated, but he literally got first turn or seized every single game. Yeah. And he won the tournament with it, but you can't count on that. No. That's not... You should never rely on always getting what you want to, to win a tournament, because at that point, you're not winning the tournament, your D6 did. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're rolling a single die to win the tournament. <laughs> and, and just to say, I'm not trying to take away from that dude, he's actually a really good player, I've talked to him since then, but it's. I'm just saying that he probably wasn't thinking of it that way, but for those of you who are out there in listener land, understand that that's essentially what you can do if you build an army like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and you don't want the game to come down to being lucky. Ever. Ever. A, a lesson that I had learned a number of years ago, and Nick Nanavati has reiterated late, more recently, you hear players can complain that, you know, oh, if I had just rolled a four on that one die, I would have won, or if I had had top of turn, then I would have had that, or whatever. And that may be true. But the response to that is make sure that your army does not come down to winning or losing off a single die roll. If that's the situation you've created, if that's the army you've built, you lost the game before that. The die roll just happened to be the factor that was the one that decided it. Yes. Yes. Now, um, and I admit, I had a game at SoCal where I gave my opponent top of turn and it cheesed me really hard. That's me making a stupid mistake. Mm -hmm. That's not me being unlucky. That's me being stupid. (laughs) And that's why we want to have this discussion, is so that players understand why they're making those decisions and can look back on those decisions and say, I made the right call or I made the wrong call. Because at the end of the day, it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about improving your game skills for future wins and losses. Because any single match is completely trivial. It doesn't really matter whether you win one game. But if you do manage to make that game so that you can win future games, that's what's critical. All right. Uh, I was going to say really quick, uh, or rather I'd like us to talk about really quickly... Features lists have that say, I want to go first versus features that I want to go second. I think that's a good topic to talk about. For sure. That would, that would be a great way to end, yeah. Do you want to lead us off with one? Yeah. Uh, so lists that like to go second, as we mentioned, are attrition style lists. So you're looking at Nurgle keyword. Yeah. Is a big Very tip common. off. Uh, lots of big blocky units. So we're talking 30 yeah. plus models. Are other things you like to see, uh, things that are just knights can be that way because they're very durable Mm -hmm. um basically like look for durable units because if you see a bunch of attrition units those are probably a second bottom turn i was just gonna i was gonna add to that also high mobility actually is is another kind of red flag for me if i'm playing against an army that is insanely mobile everything in the list is 12 inch plus moving you know loads of bikes or jet bikes or or uh, uh wave serpents or you know a lot of fast moving stuff those are the those are red flags for me that that very likely may want to go second because what they're going to rely on is their ability to monopolize the board on their terms. 
And so um, that 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 would be one that would throw up red flags for me. Also, the the last one for me is lack of damage. Actually, if I look at their list and there really isn't very much damage output, they really just don't hit very hard. It doesn't strike me as a list that is going to want to go first. It's going to be a list that's going to want to go second because going first them isn't really of much value. What are they going to do turn one if they don't have a lot of damage output? Mm-hmm. That's very fair. Uh, I would say for my part, um, things that raise a red flag for me for lists that want to go second um, is armies that, like Shailene said, have a lot of defensive abilities or very strong stats. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, armies that have very few activated or um, psychic powers, stuff like that. If they don't have anything to do on their turn, if they don't have to cast a spell, activate an ability, start up an aura, stuff like that, there's a good chance they're pretty okay with going second. Um, Mm -hmm. And another one that is often... uh, Notable is armies that have very flexible deployments, armies that can manipulate their drop count. Yes. Um, with things like transports or uh, buildings or abilities that shuffle around units into reserve and whatnot. Um, those are often armies that have a lot of incentive to be able to go second because you will sometimes see armies with very low drop counts who want to go second and they use that plus one to ensure that they do. Mm-hmm. So what are some things you think would be giveaways for an army that wants to go first? We're looking at aggressive fast units. Sure. Your, your Dawn Eagle jet bikes, perhaps? Dawn Eagle jet bikes, uh, maybe a unit of Slanesh Seekers. Yep. Uh, things that are going to go lunge out and make an immediate play for mid-table. How would how would you differentiate a unit like that, like a unit that Josh would describe that is you know a wave serpent or just something that happens to be fast? Orcs here are kind of a counterexample to yeah, they're a horde army that can take a punch, but their big threat is in melee. So something that has a huge big melee threat, their goal and job is to close in on you. Okay. For me, I think you actually hit the nail on the head earlier when it's when it says what units to look for. And I think, if I remember, I think I remember you mentioning it when you said the glass cannon. Yeah. Yeah. That Those are the units you want to look for. The, you know, like you mentioned, the, the fast, aggressive units. Fast, aggressive units that aren't very durable. Yes. And the, the, the units that are, if my opponent has a whole bunch of units that hit like a freight train, but are made of paper, very likely that person's want to go, going to want to go first. Because exactly like Sean mentioned earlier, they want to get a chance for those units to do their thing before they go down. And them going first is the best opportunity for that to happen. Yeah. Uh, so fragile bodies with big guns uh, yeah. is an example, or something more like shining spears that's remarkably paper thin, mm-hmm. but hits like a hammer. Uh, and to kind of counterpoint my my own previous example, anything with active buffs and spells. Um, anything that is going to throw four or five or six spells onto a single unit and just make them untouchable is probably really going to want your first turn. Um, a Bash Brothers list with Mortarian and Magnus is a very obvious example of that sort of thing. What other sort of things do you think would be uh, uh, an indicator or a giveaway about uh, first or second turn? Partly how they deployed, if they're people who are deploying aggressive shove units on the line, they're going to want to go first, especially if they have a low model count. Like, my job is to jump in at you as fast as I can. If that's very clearly what their battle plan is, 
that's what it is. Okay. They, they can they can show you that. Do you have any things that you think would be indicators for what a player's preference for first or second would be? Other than the ones we've mentioned, those are the big ones I'd be looking for. I mean, really and truly, the the unit count, the or the the unit count and the unit composition are going to be the big ones that I'm going to go for. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where this is where I try and take a step out mm-hmm. of my own army and try and look at if I was their army, if I was running their list, what am I trying to do with it? You know, and and that that really helps answer that question of what's the play style, what's the what what is their plan, what what are they going to try and do, and if that's what they're going to try and do, how can I counter that? So really looking to understand the opponent's game plan. 100%. That's why I have the resolution I do. Exactly. That's a good resolution. <laughs> uh, I think the only thing I would throw on that uh, is something I do a lot, look at the opponent's ranges. Where can they reach to and where are they most effective? If you're facing a Necron army where almost all of their guns shoot to 24 inches... They probably don't want second turn because if they go second, then they like they may not get to shoot any of their guns on the first turn. Mm-hmm. So that can be another big indicator. And similarly, like a melee list obviously has a very very short reach, as Josh has talked about in the past. They are that very first range band of Sun Tzu's three ranges, mm-hmm. um, and if you know they can't use that that uh, second turn very well, that they need to close as quickly as possible, sometimes first can be very, very advantageous. Yes. All right. Well, I think we covered things pretty effectively. Uh, If you are going to get stuck making that decision and you are lucky enough to win the roll-off, I know everyone out there feels like they're never the one who gets to, but, (laughs) you know, at least some of the time they're the one who wins it. Uh, Picking whether you're going to go first or second is just really, really critical to making sure the game goes your way. And just as much as deployment sets the tone of the whole game, even more so turn order does. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. The Shaylin's little piece of advice is as an exercise, read through army lists, figure out if they do or don't have a preference. Just start practicing looking for these little indicators we just talked about here at the end. Yeah, that's a that's a very good idea. Always always do kind of like Shaylin and Josh have said there, it's like, look at that army and see what's their preference and what's their game plan. Because if you can understand what their game plan is, you know how to beat it. Exactly. And back to soft play testing, uh, if you're playing against uh, someone else who's got one of these armies that does have a preference, have that discussion pre-game. Mm-hmm. Do you have a preference in turn order? Why? Just as a little just a little extra bit to practice this specific thing we just talked about. Shaylin and I know often uh, when we are practicing, we will set the turn order rather than rolling for it. Um, I'll say, oh, I would like to go second in this one because I need to see how this army plays, or I want to see what happens when you go first. Uh, And that can be a very valuable way of understanding and and sort of analyzing that decision. And in a re-rack situation like Josh has spoken of in our uh, practice episode is you re-rack and try it the other way just to make sure you know how that works, too. <laughs> That's very, very valuable. And I, I do want to throw the, the plug in, actually, uh, for, for the exercise that Shay mentioned a second ago about being able to, you know, look at lists and be able to look at the list and, and you know, a good exercise is to look at them and decide which one do you think they would lean towards. Uh, a great tool to make that happen, uh, Best Coast Pairings, BCP, is a great opportunity, a great tool to be able to make that happen. They have... 
the the subscription for them is it's actually in, insanely insanely well costed. It's it's so cheap. It's it's a really minimal cost, and it gives you access to all tournament lists that have been submitted for all tournaments that are that run BCP software. So it allows you to go on. You can look up the top five lists and look at and take a look at the list and look at the rounds. Because when you look at the rounds, you can actually go back through and look at all the rounds that that, that list played in the tournament, and you get to see their opponent and be like, well, what would they have decided here? And, and it's a great way to do that exercise that, that Shay just talked about. Just You can go on BCP and look up some of those lists of some of the big tournaments going around and you know, kind of get an idea. How do you think they would make that choice? And a really good exercise to be able to really kind of hone in on what Shay just mentioned. I think that would be a great way to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and as I said, you can theory hammer with your friends. You don't actually have to play the game. You guys can do it together as a group. Yeah, we certainly do that quite a lot at tournaments where, you know, you get a couple people who are there waiting and you see what the round matchups for tomorrow are and you kind of play them out in your head and, and see who you who you think is going to win and how it's going to go and discuss it with your buddies. Because I tell you what, nothing's more valuable than another brain. Yeah. So true. That's uh, every time every time Sean and I wind up together in the same at the same event, we spend half the time just just spitballing list ideas almost the entire time. <laughs> I mean, is that not the best part of the game right there? <laughs> it is single-handedly is. With me occasionally injecting in something really thoughtful and crazy. I, I was going to say, you inject more than occasionally. You're usually pretty deeply entailed in all of that. <laughs> don't, let, don't let them fool you, folks. Don't let her fool you, right? She's a demon player at heart. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. Well, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to this episode and found it useful. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at inthefinesthour at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group for In the Finest Hour. We'd love it if you would give us a nice little like or maybe review over there. Uh, you can check us out on In the Finest Hour at Podbean as well. We have a site there where all of our episodes are hosted. And we have a Patreon in the finest hour. Uh, you may notice something of a theme there. Um, if you look up us, us up on there and you think we, you'd like to have a little bit of more personal access to those of us here in the chat, uh, we have both a Facebook group that is private just for our Patreon supporters, as well as a Discord that you can talk to. we got some folks hanging out there. And yep. as a matter of fact, this week we have two of our new Patreon supporters that I'd like to call out. A Mr. Mr. Adam Sanders, uh, who I've had some very interesting discussions with already. Uh, he's got some interesting thoughts on Necrons that have, we've been talking over quite a bit and kind of going through. And Benjamin Chia, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm very good at mispronouncing names. Uh, but he has also been generous enough to support us. Uh, we really appreciate that from both of you. The money will go towards getting us a little bit better equipment and maybe doing some special events at tournaments and whatnot in the near future here. Mm-hmm. See, upcoming tournaments and other things we have going on, I think it's pretty quiet for us at this point. Um, grind time, that's what it is. It's grind time. It, yeah, when I say quiet, I don't mean still. Mm -hmm. It is quiet, but it is not still because we are all panicking over our lists at this point. Uh, desperately trying to assemble things. Desperately trying to assemble, yes. Panicking, no. Well, yeah. There's a couple different kinds of panic. I don't even have a faction chosen yet, so yeah, I'm panicking. Oh, <laughs> you are a brave soul. Listeners, email Josh a faction suggestion. He's just going to pick one from the listeners. That's only going to make it more complicated, though. <laughs> 
Uh, Maybe he'll find inspiration from that. The, the only thing we do have coming up is, I believe it's the 25th, 26th, and 27th of January here. Uh, I'm going to be hosting a uh, review and discussion of the events at the CanCon tournament, mm. uh, which is happening down in Australia. It's Australia's latest, largest tournament. I believe they're breaking 150 players this year. Um, so, quite a sizable event, and they already have lists put up and submitted. Um, I will not be the only one there. There will obviously be a couple of the organizers of the tournament who are going to be there with me, and uh, my friends Pablo Martinez and Val Heffelfinger from Chapter Tactics will also be on to discuss things. Mm -hmm. So, you'll get a round of expert and non-expert commentary. Uh, kind of going over, talking about the Australian meta and all the lists we're seeing down there. Yeah, no. Uh, very good thing to listen to. We will have a link in the show notes. Yes, we'll put that up as soon as we, we get the... That will be streaming live. Uh, I don't know exactly when those streams will be going up American time, because there's it's going to be a little bit weird with the time zone differences. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd also like to say thanks to our sponsors... Dank Muse has provided the music for this episode and other episodes. It can be found on YouTube as well as on SoundCloud and Patreon. And Rylan Woodrow for doing our art. If anyone else would like to sponsor an episode, put an advertisement in, then we encourage you to contact us through our Facebook or through our Gmail account. Uh, we're willing to negotiate some rates. And Shaylin, I believe you have a very interesting list for us this week. Uh, something from a pretty recent event, as it happens. One that Josh may have actually just been to here. <laughs> Alright, uh, list is a Tau list. Um, it's got a battalion that's Tau Sept. Uh, a vanguard attachment that's also Tau Sept. And, and another battalion that's Tau. Uh, all right, first uh, first battalion is uh, got a Kadra Fireblade, who is the Warlord. It's got a commander and an enforcer battle suit. Uh, he's got the advanced targeting system and the Cyclonic Ion Blaster mm -hmm. for troop. Trio of those, I believe. Yes, uh, it's got three strike teams for the troop choices. The usual pulse rifle kit out. It's got triple Riptide, as was mentioned, as we talked about a little bit before the show. Smart missiles. Advanced Target Assistance, Heavy Burst Cannon, and Target Lock. Target Lock's the one where you can move and shoot, right? It sure is. All right. That's I'll a fairly like. basic Riptide setup right there. Yeah. Uh, it's got Tactical Drones, which are Shield Drones in this particular circumstance. A total of 13 of them divided across two squads. Vanguard Detachment has, again, another Enforcer with a Cyclone Blaster and a Drone Controller. Mm -hmm. An Erethral with an Honor Blade. Okay. Three Farsight Marksmen. Nice little marker lights. Yep, no, those guys make great marker lights and annoying deep strike pushbacks. Last uh, battalion has Dark Strider and, the again, the Enforcer. Yep. He has advanced targeting systems like on a guy, Lawn Bastard, instead of drone controllers. Three strike teams and a unit of sniper drones. Well, this was, uh, sorry, I'm spacing on the gentleman's name, but it was the uh, winning list of the event. Daniel Sansone. Oh, thank you. Not bad, a little list. No, it's 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 a sturdy little tower list. It has all of the basic elements we like to see. Enough drones to basically prevent a Castellan from nuking your Riptides. Um, enough marksmen to cause saturation. Or not marksmen, uh... Marker lights. Not marker lights. 
Fire Warriors to cause saturation. Oh. It, it did very sturdy. Had a good time. Dark Strider's a neat little HQ with some snazzy little tricks, so... Yeah. Yeah. And he ended up, he ended up winning best overall, too. Nice. Oh, really? Okay. So, maybe we'll be able to get some pictures of his list and see how, how that all looked, because it must have been pretty nice looking. Yeah. So, I hope you'll join us all next week when we will be talking about elite lists versus horde lists and the differences between how they play and what kind of game they have. Mm, this is good versus evil again. It could be, <laughs> but which is good and which is evil. Well, I play elites, so I have an opinion. I'm sure you do. <laughs> and with that, we'll catch you all next week. I'm Sean Morgan. I'm Shailen Allen. And Josh Death. <laughs> <laughs>